Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, October 17th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Huai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. All right, guys, so we have a lot of news to, well, not that much, but some news to discuss anyway today. Uh, Jacob, let's kick things off by talking about The Batman. This is a movie we've been talking about a lot over the past couple weeks. Uh, even earlier this week, we talked about Zoe Kravitz joining the cast. What is the, the latest shakeups in the world of The Batman? Well, uh, late yesterday, after the podcast had been recorded, uh, Jonah Hill exited negotiations to play the Riddler, which had been reported for a few weeks. And then right the next day, uh, Warner Brothers wasted no time to get a press release that uh, Paul Dano has joined the Batman, playing the role of, uh, tell me if this name sounds familiar, Edward Nashton? Well, I actually Googled this just now. Edward Nashton is the real name of Edward Nigma, a.k.a. the Riddler. So apparently Paul Dano was their backup if, if Jonah Hill fell through. And quite frankly, I think this casting seems better than Jonah Hill. I mean, Jonah Hill Riddler sounds interesting, but... For a character whose whole thing is that he uh, is a playful maniac who is so obsessed with his own genius, he leaves like convoluted clues to his crimes 
sort of the, the baby-faced menace of Paul Dano feels like a really good fit for this character. What do you guys think? Hmm. HT, what do you think? I think this is perfect casting. I think the lengthy, the, the lanky mania of Paul Dano is just really perfect for the Riddler. And um, I'm interested to see like which direction he takes it because he, he probably won't be leaning into the more over-the-top nature of Jim Carrey's version and the campy version we've seen in the 60s show. So we might be seeing a darker version of the Riddler than we've ever seen before. So it'll be really fun to see, and I'm excited to see how that uh, plays out. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. Like, um, Dano does not strike me as somebody who would really uh, dial it up a notch. And this movie, you know, from what we've heard about it being sort of a like a back to basics, you know, more of like a noir detective story kind of thing doesn't seem like it would really um, <laughs> tonally fit with like a Jim Carrey-esque performance in here. So Paul Dano, you know, has like one of the saddest faces in cinema, I think. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if, if he's able to like imbue the Riddler with some genuine uh, heartfelt emotion and make you feel for that character. That would certainly be an interesting thing. You know, like in Batman the Animated Series, I'm thinking about like that, um, I don't remember the name of the specific episode, but there's this one episode about Mr. Freeze and his wife that um, really shines a new light on that character and gives you a different perspective on him. I'm wondering if we might see something similar with uh, a Paul Dano version of the Riddler where it's like a more serious grounded version of this character. Yeah, yeah the my, Riddler's oh. interesting. Oh, um, oh, well, the Riddler's interesting because it's it is kind of the character is kind of almost like a knockoff of the Joker in in terms of its gimmick, and thus has always been often been treated as a joke. I don't really know like if we've ever had a more pathos heavy take on the character as, as far as I know in the in the comics. I'm sure there are, but um, it would be interesting to see how like if they dial that up a little bit. Yeah, what I'm curious about here is there are two directions I can see this going. Uh, right, the current uh, current Riddler in comics in the current DC universe is probably my least favorite Riddler in a long time, because he's a remorseless psychopath, serial killer, like completely cold, just a vicious vicious person mm. who literally carves question marks into his skin. It's super lame. And I hate it. Um, I, I can't wait for them to reboot him in some way, as as they always do with these characters. My favorite Riddler, which is uh. And you see shades of this in everything from the Adam West, you know, Batman series to even modern day is a criminal so supremely arrogant, so obsessed with his own genius that he has to, like, leave behind convoluted clues and riddles just because he enjoys the game so much. He enjoys watching people stumble over his genius. And that's when I want to see Paul Dano here play a, a guy whose defining feature is that he is he's the smartest guy in the room. 99% of the time until Batman enters the picture. And I, that's why I want to see from Paul Dano. So almost like a Zodiac uh, type take hmm. on yeah. uh, the Riddler. That'd be fun. Yeah, Zodiac might be with a bit, with a bit more humor. But yeah, I think... The yes, not, not the horrible serial killer. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying he's playing Jim Carrey here, but I definitely think Paul Dano could like they could have some fun with, with a guy who is, let's, let's face it, really screwing up the bad guy's plans but leaving behind all these clues. <laughs> I, I, I really like that. So Yeah, for sure. All right, so yesterday I feel like we spent a good portion of the episode uh, devoted to a conversation about <laughs> Studio Ghibli and how we're never going to see their movie streaming on any streaming service. We went into like a whole thing about it. So listen to that episode. I would still recommend it. It's a good conversation. But uh, today some news came out that like completely nullified that entire conversation. HT, what did we learn? Yeah, I guess we're taking it all back now because 
Studio Ghibli has is going to a streaming service. HBO Max has acquired the streaming rights to Studio Ghibli Films, uh, which will mark the first time in history that the Animation Studios films will be available on any digital or streaming service. Up until now, it was only available, as we were saying before, in theatrical re-releases or on home video through DVD or Blu-ray collections. Um, never has it been available to stream either like for rent or anything like that. So this is a momentous occasion. And um, this is a deal that HBO Max struck with G-Kids, the distributor we were talking about yesterday, um, that is responsible for the North American distribution rights for Studio Ghibli after Disney let the, the rights lapse in 2017. And um, the deal will basically uh, uh, apply to the entire slate for the animation studio. Uh, the ones listed in the press release include Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Monoke, House in the Castle, Kiki's Delivery Service, Ponyo, Castle in the Sky, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, and more. And these will be available to stream when HBO Max launches in the spring of 2020. So, Jacob, I know you weren't on this part of, uh, of yesterday's episode. I just wanted to throw this out to you because we had a big uh, discussion yesterday about how, um, I guess, up until this point, Studio Ghibli had made it a point to try to preserve the theatrical experience for their movies. Like, they, they wanted to force people to watch it the way that they wanted people to watch it. And we were s sort of, um, you know, like saying uh, that, that has its ups and downs. It's it's good aspects and bad. What do you make of this entire library, you know, coming to the streaming world? Do you think that this is good because more people are going to have access to it, or do you? Is there a part of you that wishes? I wish they would have sort of stuck to their guns and um, and forced people to see it in a way where it might be a little bit more special and make more of an impact on people when they watch these movies for the first time. I think this is a net positive in just about every way, and the reasoning is that. Uh, some of us are fortunate to live in cities like New York, uh, Austin, Los Angeles, where Studio Ghibli films screen with some regularity. But if you're, you know, a kid living out in the Midwest somewhere without access to, you know, theaters that are showing Studio Ghibli films on the big screen, you know, these are not experiences that should be hidden from you. These are not experiences that, you know, you should have to seek out an often out-of-print Blu-ray set to find for hundreds of dollars. These are movies that the more people who see them and are enchanted by them, you know, the, the longer the dream of what this company stands for lives on. So, well, I'm going to be the hoity-toity guy who loves seeing things in theaters, and I always will be. I'm thinking of, like, the countless people who would not have access to these movies finally have a chance to see them all over the world. Yeah, HT, what do you think about this? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I was mixed uh, the other day on whether it was a positive or a negative, but I think it was more respecting Studio Ghibli's wishes to kind of keep their... Uh, their films and their titles exclusive, but now that it will be available, it is pretty exciting, especially for all those families who haven't had access to you know, Hayao Miyazaki's and Sao Takahata's masterpieces before. And um, I'm actually, I, I'm also interested in uh, whether some of the more obscure Ghibli titles will be available too. Some of them I actually haven't been able to see because they weren't available on home video release in the States. Although I actually looked this up right beforehand and movies like Ocean Waves, which was a Studio Ghibli TV film that was only released in theaters in Japan um, and never got a, a U.S. release until 2017. So that that is available on DVD now, but uh, or Blu-ray right now, but I haven't been able to watch it. So if HBO Max is connected to HBO Go, which I have, I would be very excited to see some of those um, harder to find uh, Ghibli titles. So and like I hope too that maybe they'll 
expand beyond just the feature film slate and maybe show some of Hayao Miyazaki's short films, which are for now only available to see at the Ghibli Museum in Japan. Oh, yeah, that would be really cool. Uh, I'm going to jump in here and say when this does happen, anyone has your HBO Max accounts, uh, watch The Tale of Princess Kaguya, one of my favorite Ghibli films that no one ever talks about because it's not Miyazaki, but it's, it's, it made me cry like 18 times. So. It is heart-rending <laughs> and one of the most gorgeously animated films I've ever seen. It's a little bit out of the uh, Ghibli style, too, because it's, it's um, drawn almost like calligraphy or uh, wood art, and it's really, really gorgeous. So, yes. I also give my high recommendation of the tale for Princess Kaguya. Yeah, and the fact that this will allow so many people to see not just Miyazaki, but the Miyazaki-adjacent things that don't get as much conversation because they're not mm-hmm. Miyazaki is what makes this exciting for me. Sorry, Ben, I know I know I'll keep this going, but this is very cool. No, 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 it's yeah. great, and, and I'm looking forward to it as well because, like I've been saying, you know, I've been trying to sort of cross these movies off my bucket list, and, and I know that they're, like, important and interesting, and I just uh, had such an aversion to this art form for such a long time, but I'm finally opening myself up to it and, and really enjoying what I've seen so far there. So I'm excited about this. The only thing that I'm sort of bummed about is HBO Max. Like, I wish it was coming to a service that I already subscribed to because um, I don't know. I, I have HBO Go right now um, because it comes with my cable subscription. I, I, one of these days, guys, I'm going to have to, like, make some serious cuts in what, what happens with these streaming services because, you know, as each... It seems like every other day now we're finding out about another big show that's coming to, you know, X streaming network and there are so many of them that it's going to be impossible to we're, for everybody to subscribe to all of old, them. We're going to need those old bundles now, like cable bundles, but yeah. for streaming services. Seriously. And it's going to just go back to the old uh, old industry practices as before, so it's just I feel like it's going to come full circle. Yeah, and, and Aisha, you mentioned something about like if your HBO Go sort of like rolls into HBO Max, I wish they would come out and, and give some definitive uh, word about that because now I'm just like... <laughs> anxious about whether or not I'm going to be able to see this. And since HBO Max doesn't even drop until spring of next year, it's going to be like months before I finally have an answer probably. But uh, anyway, well, uh, Ben, yeah. uh, speaking of things rolling on to HBO Max, here's a segue for you to utilize. <laughs> Yes, I appreciate that, Jacob. Perfect. Okay, so the Melissa McCarthy comedy Super Intelligence, which is the, the trailer for this movie even out there yet i saw it with peter i think at CinemaCon back in april of this year and i'm not even sure if it's been released to the public yet i I should have looked that up before we started recording but anyway warner brothers has this movie coming out a melissa mccarthy comedy called super intelligence basically she plays a woman who uh is pinpointed by her artificial intelligence uh, (laughs) and and she's used as like an experiment because this ai wants to uh I don't even know, observe her, take over her life, and then eventually take over the entire world. So they're using her as sort of like the guinea pig in their experiment to see how easily it is to to take over uh, a human being's life. I'm guessing the answer is pretty easy, uh, considering how connected we all are right now. Um, But this trailer, guys, was really, really rough when we watched it. Not, like, in terms of uh, visual effects or anything like that. It was just bad. Like, it's, it's a studio comedy, but it was not funny at all. And I guess that wouldn't be too surprising if you know that this movie is directed by uh, Ben Falcone, who is Melissa McCarthy's husband, and they have paired up on several movies, and uh, most of them are not good. I think the 
the conventional wisdom is that if she is in a movie directed by her husband, it's going to be a piece of trash. So uh, the news here is that Warner Brothers is dropping this movie directly onto HBO Max. So the movie was supposed to come out, I think, in December of this year in theaters. And the studio decided, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're just going to make this the first, I guess, original HBO Max movie instead of doing that. And uh, as Chris Evangelista, who wrote this article, mentions in this piece, this has happened before. Paramount did this with uh, the Cloverfield Paradox. I think that was last year, right after uh, the Super Bowl. That movie just hit Netflix in a surprise thing, but that was supposed to be a theatrical movie, but it had a lot of production problems, and Paramount ended up... last year? I think so. Um, oh, God. Maybe, maybe <laughs> it was 2017. But um, but yeah, the you know the, that movie had some production issues, and... Uh, Paramount just decided, let's just cut our ties and, and, you know, offload it to Netflix and we won't have to worry about looking like fools and potentially losing a lot of money uh, if we put this in the, the theatrical landscape here. And it looks like Warner Brothers is doing the same thing. And, and Chris brings up a good point in this piece, which is with these studios, all, you know, these major conglomerates, entertainment conglomerates, starting their own streaming services, this kind of thing is probably going to be happening more and more often. We've already seen it, too, with um, Lady and the Tramp, the Disney movie that is going straight to Disney+. Plus. I'm not 100% sure, and I don't know now if Disney would ever admit if that movie was originally designed to be a full theatrical feature, but I, I think there were some rumblings of that in the, the early days of its development. But now it's it's going to be like one of the first you know day one titles on Disney Plus. So uh, yeah, I guess that's the new normal that we're we're heading into this brave new world of uh, studios making movies, spending probably a, a decent amount of money to make uh, major movies with big stars, and then seeing the final product and just deciding at that point whether or not they want to <laughs> just like use it to fill the algorithm and and you know feed the content machine or actually try to take more of a risk on it and, and put it out into theaters. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on this practice in general? Are you uh, dreading the, the new world order that we're looking down here? My initial thought is that, yes, Cloverfield Paradox did come out last year, 10 years ago. That's what it feels <laughs> like. Because every month feels like a, a friggin' year now. Uh, but that, for me, feels like when it comes out theatrically, it leaves kind of a big stamp. And Cloverfield Paradox was a big deal for about 48 hours and never realized it was bad and it went away. So this just feels like an excuse for studios to really bury things. I mean, if Netflix is, is um, releasing a lot of like mid tier dramas and, you know, romantic comedies and movies that aren't getting made these days, I'm really curious to see if other studios um, follow that lead or if they just use this platform as an excuse to like, well, that's no good. Let's not waste the money putting it in theaters. So I can see this being a positive thing where they were the Netflix route of, you know, this thing, people want to see this thing, but they may not want to go all the way out of their, out of their homes and pay money for theater and for popcorn. Uh, that, to me, is, 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 is the positive influence here. But if the negative influence is, well, everything we, everything we make that sucks is going to go right here to streaming, then that's no good. So I'm hoping that there's a level of quality control to these things. Yeah, that's a good point, too, because, like, a few, I think, God, I mean, you're talking about uh, not being able to judge time. Was it last year or the year before that that, like, uh, Netflix and the rom-com boom started up again with movies like Set It, was, it Up and stuff like that? I think it was last year. Okay, yeah. So, you know, there, there is the potential for these companies to, like you said, decide – uh, actively decide, okay, we're going to make a movie that we probably wouldn't make in a theatrical environment specifically for this. And yeah, if it's up to a certain level of quality, then 
uh, I think that's all we can hope for. So um, we'll we'll see how that goes. We'll see what other movies decide to, uh, or Warner Brothers decides to drop straight to HBO Max. Um, let's talk about another. Uh, I, oh, I do want to add something actually. Yes. I I do find it a little bit uh, troubling or potentially discouraging, because it doesn't just apply to movies that are look like potential critical bombs. I'm I'm thinking about specifically Annihilation, which was considered a big risk by. Uh, what studio was it? Oh yeah, it? that was, was a it? Paramount one too, I think. Yeah, was uh, considered a big risk by Paramount, and had like maybe a couple weeks theatrical release before it was dropped, at least internationally on Netflix. And um, most people saw it through streaming on Netflix, and it also got buried on the streaming as well. So I feel like there's potential for movies that are considered box office risks and yet are amazing creative storytelling. Um, like experiments that uh, have the potential to be buried in this method as well. And I don't want all like mid-budget movies just to be, to go straight to VOD if they're considered, if like, if the, I, the potential of them being made at all is just for them to be, to go to streaming. I don't really like that um, potential future mm-hmm. because we see movies like Hustlers, which is a mid-budget film and is doing way above its budget, doing really well at the box office. And if we abide by this um, sort of strategy in the future, Hustlers would go straight to streaming. Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't even think about the Annihilation connection, but that was like my—I think that was my favorite movie of last year. So I would have hated to miss out on the experience of being able to see that theatrically. So. Uh, yeah, man, this is this is a tough one. This is, I'm sure we're gonna see all sorts of crazy mixtures of uh, good ideas, risky ideas, straight up terrible stuff coming to these streaming services. But we'll keep you guys posted on all of that. Um, HD, let's talk about another Warner Brothers property, which is the Harry Potter franchise, and they have launched a Harry Potter subscription service. Uh, what's the deal with this, and do you think it's worth it? Well, that depends on whether you have a secret vault hidden underground that's guarded by goblins because it's quite <laughs> pricey i do don't um, you well you know maybe if my parents have left it to me secretly and never told me <laughs> but this is a subscription service not a streaming service i must say um it's called wizarding world gold and it's a 75 dollar a year subscription that offers key discounts and exclusive events for fans. Um, it's similar to Disney's D23 membership, and it'll be available on the new Harry Potter um, Wizarding World app that just launched this August. So uh, this membership will include things like a um, discount at the wizardingworld.com shop, at the Platform 93 Quarters London's King Cross Station, Warner Bros. Studio. Warner Brothers Studio Tours in London and Hollywood, as well as a Harry Potter vacation package at Universal Orlando's Resort. Um, many other things like that. As, you get, um, like, all of the books, too, right? Like, as if get, people yeah. don't already have them. <laughs> yeah, you get all seven books in the main series, discounted merchandise deals, special events. So all sorts of fun little knickknacks and special deals that, if you are a major Potterhead, would probably you know, be very enticing to you. But $75 a year is quite pricey. Um, I don't subscribe to any of these kind of subscription services. So I can't say I can't compare it to others and say whether it's worth it or not. But I do even though I'm a major Harry Potter fan, I don't know if I have $75 to spare a year just to get like 
extra swag. I was going to say, you're the biggest Harry Potter fan I know, I think. And like, are you tempted at all by this? Or is that price tag really just, you know, a huge red flag for you? Um, the price tag is a bit much and it is, some of the offerings are tempting. I like the idea of a vacation package at Universal Orlando because I've been really wanting to go, but there are only a few things I would pick and choose. And I don't think I would want to pay $75 a year for all of those, um, elements. Mm -hmm. Jacob, as somebody who covers the theme park beat and has seen what the Harry Potter brand has done to Universal Studios, um, do you think that like, so we've got uh, Star Wars Celebration, we've got um, D23. Do you think that Harry Potter as a brand is strong enough to support a fully, you know, a fully studio-backed uh, convention of its own? Do you think that's something we're going to see soon? The most recent film, the, the uh, Fantastic Beast and Johnny Depp's Bad Haircut, um, <laughs> that one makes me think no, because Harry Potter fans may... Harry Potter fans love Harry Potter. They love Hogwarts. They love, you know, that particular cycle of things. And I, and I feel like the ongoing Wizarding world has not lit the same. Has not lit the same people on fire. It certainly hasn't for me. But and I, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say, like, I think you know, there were probably, um, I guess, I guess uh, the Star Wars prequels predated. Um, uh, Star Wars Celebration, probably. I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I don't know what year Star Wars well, Celebration began. That I guess Star Wars, though, always had, in addition to core movies, it had comics, it had games, it had RPGs, it had you know novels. There was oh, the dream of Star Wars was kept alive, and fans embraced that ongoing dream constantly for decades before movies came along and after movies came along. And these days, Star Wars is a constant given thing. But even during the desert years, Star Wars fandom remained like crazy uh whereas harry potter fandom seems to be you know here are seven books here are eight movies here's a theme park land that makes me live the things i love but no one seems that excited about it, about it going forward i mean in the actor who plays level long bottom probably wants to show up at a convention and collect a paycheck but that's, he's probably more excited than most fans at this point um, right am i being too cynical I, I feel like harry potter fandom is harry potter fandom not wizarding world fandom and wizarding world fandom is dying off ac you could probably speak to this i I have to say I agree with you. I think that there is, there's proof in the fact that Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is doing exceptionally well, especially for a very expensive stage play in Broadway and in London, um, whereas you're not seeing great box office numbers for the Fantastic Beasts movie. But like, do you if if Warner Brothers announced a Harry Potter convention HT, you would probably go to it, right? Even though they have this ongoing Fantastic Beasts. Um, franchise that people don't really care about. It, you, as somebody who just cares about, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, like the core Harry Potter content, would still go, right? Because there's at a convention like that, there's going to be so many opportunities to dig into that stuff. And if you want, you could probably completely ignore all the Fantastic Beasts, Wizarding World stuff, right? That's true. I might go. It depends on what kind of things they're offering there, because there is already a fan-led convention called LeakyCon, and um, that's something that is very much for the fans, from the fans. And um, Warner Brothers is especially uh, strict when it comes to fan creations as well, so I wonder if there's a way for them to, like, remedy that relationship, because there's been some great fan creations, like 
comedy plays and things that I would like to see highlighted more versus just more fantastic beast things. You know, just more of an engagement with the fan community versus just trying to shove Wizarding World stuff down our throats. Um, but uh, having that being said, I do want to go to the Wizarding World theme park and visit it again because yeah. it is fun. It is very immersive. I think it's like the immersion, the immersion of it rather than, you know, new properties, I guess you would say. Yeah. I H-E, what if I what if I told you a convention would feature a photo opportunity with a very tired Rupert Grint? Oh, that, well, then I would go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, guys, I think we're like days away from or maybe maybe months away from HBO Max announcing a full on Harry Potter TV show. And I think that could be something that could kickstart that fandom and, and get people back into Harry Potter, even though these new movies have have sort of uh, pushed people away or, or turned people off to it. Um, the brand yeah, is just so big. The Fantastic right? Beasts um, movie was when they went back to Hogwarts. So if they had a Hogwarts set TV series, I'm sure, even if it wasn't just um, the characters we know and love, I think it would be successful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so let's move on to our last news story of the day. And this actually broke yesterday. And um, Jacob, you were very, very excited about this. Uh, The classic comic book series Bone is coming to Netflix as an animated show. What's going on here? Uh, Ben, what if I told you that uh, Jeff Smith, writer-artist Jeff Smith's comic series Bone, which ran for 55 issues from 1991, 2004 is my favorite piece of American pop culture art of all time. Wow! Wait! Wait! Wow! That is a huge <laughs> statement. I real I knew that it was your favorite comic, but uh, your favorite piece of American pop culture art. Period. I think so. I thought about this long hard since yesterday, and I, if I had to rescue one book from a fire in my house, it would be my copy of Bone. Wow. Okay. So first of all, for I, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, maybe when like a another version of an adaptation was being kicked around. But for people who haven't are not longtime listeners and have maybe never heard of Bone, set the stage for us. What is this thing, and and why should we care about it? Uh, Bone was an indie uh, comic written and drawn by Jeff Smith, and started in 1991. And it follows the three Bone cousins, these sort of white, adorable little creatures who are running out of their town. Uh, for reasons that are explained in the comic, and find himself settling in this fantasy valley, uh, you know, sort of a rural, rural, you know, nature-driven, um, cozy fantasy world. And it begins as a very light-hearted uh, humor comic, following these uh, creatures as they sort of um, fi- meet interesting characters, uh, you know, uh, find their bearings, find jobs, um, and just live in this world. And over the course of uh, over well over a thousand pages if you buy the full collected version it evolves into this epic fantasy uh like tolkien scale uh star wars scale uh story a story that goes in so many fascinating directions and does it all without losing a sense of humor does it all without losing a sense of character and watching these characters who are introduced you know in a humor comic grow and change as they realize they're not a humor comic they're in a massive fantasy epic and watching them encounter that, that those challenges without losing the core nature of who they are is such a spellbinding journey and i described it before as if chuck jones tried to adapt lord of the rings after watching too much miyazaki and that's really what it feels like but it's also a disservice because jeff smith's world and his animation is in his writing is not does not lean on influences it is wholly original it is his and his writing is so sharp. He's so funny. I even in his darkest moments, Bone is so damn funny. 
And like the best of Pixar, this is a family comic. It's an all ages comic. I, you can I, I, an eight year old could pick up Bone and read it just as much as like an eighty year old, and that's a cliche, but it's true. And I there is no story that I feel better encapsulates what the perfect you know piece of entertainment for an entire family can be than Jeff Smith's Bone. Wow. But anyway, uh, um, <laughs> uh. And over the years, he's been trying to make a, a, a film version of Bone since the late 90s when Nickelodeon was going to make an animated film. But Jeff Smith has always retained uh, very, very close control over this and has spoken about how Nickelodeon wanted to cast the main characters all as children, even though they're not children. They wanted to include a song from NSYNC on the soundtrack. And Jeff Smith said, you know, Bone is Star Wars. It's, you know, it's Lord of the Rings. It's not, you know, a children's thing. It is a, it is a, it is, it is a, uh, an adventure set in its own world. And you know, Warner Brothers was going to make a trilogy of films for years, and that slowly petered off. A few directors came and went. And uh, Smith still seems to be on board. He was released a statement with a Netflix announcement. He seems very enthusiastic. Seems I agree with his statement when he says that television in a serialized form may be the best uh, format for Bone, since it is 55 issues. It could be 55 episodes if they wanted it to be. Uh, I am just absolutely thrilled. I'm very curious to see what the animation style is, because uh, Smith's style is... Uh, deceptively simple in how uh it looks like when you look at it first like there, does, there seems to be like you know maybe not as detailed as an artist but it's by design the amount of the way he uses a uh, negative space to create the illusion of movement and the way he draws simple character reactions that um are have so much so much character in his characters which is like a silly thing to say but it's true i'm worried that i'm worried that they'll go the full cgi you know DreamWorks Pixar route. Mm-hmm. When I'd love to see something that looks a little more traditional, even a CGI animated thing that tries to capture Smith's very distinctive uh, style. He's one of those artists where you see his work, even if you immediately know, oh, that's Jeff Smith. He's unmistak- he has an unmistakable style. So but I don't want the game lost. So we know that this is coming to Netflix, but do we know, uh, you know, other than Smith himself, who is probably maybe like executive producing it or something like that, do we know of anybody else who's attached to this talent wise behind the scenes? Anything? Uh, not yet. The, the release was uh, just that Netflix is making it and that Smith has given it his blessing. I'm very curious to see who is going to be show running this because uh, how do you adapt somebody whose voice is this specific? And I'm really hoping to keep Smith really on board um, to make sure this clicks with him. Yeah. Well, uh, AC, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm interested now. Uh, I'm certainly sold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, is hearing Jacob get you know emotional and invested in this is enough of a sell for this. I don't really know what it's about, but it sounds amazing. And hey, Jacob, HD, more than anybody else in the staff, I think Bone is your shit. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, didn't you say that it's easily like the uh, the comic is like pretty cheap and and easily available right now for people if they want to dive into that? Yes, there are two versions, uh, two main versions. There is a, a one volume collection that is the entire series in black and white. The retail price is 40 bucks. You can get cheaper on Amazon. And the comic was originally published in black and white. There's a lot of people prefer to read it this way. But for 40 bucks for you know 14 years worth of comics is a hell of a deal. Yeah. Uh, there is a hardcover edition that isn't the full color version, which was colorized after the fact and, and like re-released in color. That one's 125 bucks. So it's, it's, it's owned for fans only. People are already dedicated to it. And Smith himself um, seems to sort of fluctuate on whether he prefers color or black and white because... Um, he wrote. He drew it in black and white because he isn't. Sorry, I'm going long, but he, he drew it in black and white because uh, it was an indie comic. It was cheaper to print black and white, and he kind of leaned into that. And he met um, another artist. I can't remember who. God, I can't remember who it was who told him that um, that Bone is a comic about life and will not be complete until it's, until it's been given color. So that's why he decided to go through and colorize it as well. And in both versions, color color and black and white 
are so very different, and they both um, make the same story have this, have a very unique tone. So I'm very, you know what? I'm very curious to see uh, how much they borrow from the color aesthetics because it's not just colorized for the sake of the soft and color on it. They make very good, careful color choices in the color version. So go out and buy Bone. Uh, as you can see, I'm very excited about this, and I would love the. <laughs> For all of you to email the show and tell me how excited you are about Bone. <laughs> yeah, if there are any other uh, boneheads out there, <laughs> let us know. Uh, Jacob, I think you said yesterday when this dropped, like this is your favorite piece of movie news in the entire year, right? I think so. I mean, like I said that three years ago when they announced that they were making a, a movie trilogy out of it. So who knows? But <laughs> I feel good about this one. I feel like Netflix is the, actually the right home for this for this uh, series. Yeah, and they're you know Netflix has been you know they picked up The Witcher and they've got all sorts of um, big like fantasy action adventure type of stuff that they're. Uh, working on now trying to I guess fill that hole that's left behind uh, that, that Game of Thrones left behind so um, maybe this fits uh, probably a little bit more family friendly but at least in that um, puzzle piece somewhere right They've yeah, been building I mean, yeah. quite an animation hub too, not just for anime, original anime for Netflix, but also for alums of Avatar, The Last Airbender, who've been making things like She-Ra and Voltron and uh, the Dragon Prince. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. Um, are they actually, aren't they making another season of Avatar: The Last Airbender or something? They're making a live-action version uh, of Avatar: yes. The Last Airbender. That's right. Uh, well, let's hope that that's better than the M. Night Shyamalan version, oh. and uh, I think that's oh. going to bring us to the end of today's episode of the show. Oh, I Wait, will just say on. that all the fans of um, all those of, 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 of Legend of Korra and She-Ra who have not read Bone are going to fall in love with Thorn, probably one of my favorite characters in all of, all, all of fiction, who's going to be like the new character who everybody draws on, on, on their Tumblr pages. So look, look for that. <laughs> What were you going to say, HC? No, I was just saying for Jacob. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> right I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm rarely as excited these days, guys. I'm sorry. No, that's great. I mean, certainly no need to apologize. Um, all right, Jacob, tell people where they can find more of your excitement online. Um, I'm on Twitter. Where I'm at Jacob S. Hall, and I'm on SlashFilm.com every single day. HT? I'm also writing at SlashFilm.com every single day, and I am at HTranBui on Twitter. You can find me at SlashFilm.com. You can find me also on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. And you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deep dives into the great features we have on the site, like Chris Evangelista's ongoing 31 Days of Streaming Horror column that he's got going on for this month. So check that out in the show notes as well. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send us your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns at peter at slashfilm.com and make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.